Lord's Day and be able to seek the Lord together and seek His face and His wisdom through the proclamation of His Word. If you would, uh, please turn your Bibles today to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, chapter 5. I'm just going to read a few verses and then we will unpack it as we go. Ephesians 5, chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 16 and 17. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 16 to 17 reads, So then, be careful how you live, making the most of your time or redeeming the time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you provided a way for us to come together today. Lord, we worship you. We exalt you. We lift you up. Lord, this is your day. This is the Lord's day. Lord, we ask that you would sanctify the church today, that you would set us apart for your glory. Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, that you'd give us the mind of Christ, the mouth of Christ. Lord, that you would give us the ability by the Spirit of God to be able to hear what is being preached today. Not the words of Jeff, but the words that come from the throne of Christ. Lord, we ask that you'd be honored today in the way that we conduct ourselves in the hearing of the word. That you'd prepare our hearts so we'd be able to hear. That you would give us ears, Lord. Be glorified in the, the worship. Be glorified uh, in the preaching of your word. And be glorified in the fellowship of the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. So then, be careful how you live, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This particular chapter, being chapter 5 of Ephesians, is really a continuation of the practical exhortations commenced in Ephesians 4, in which, obviously, um, if you've studied the book of Ephesians, you see that it is really separated into two portions. Uh, at the beginning, Paul uh, breaks out almost in song as he declares uh, the glories of Christ and the calling of God and the uh, foreknowledge of his saving his elect and who we are in Christ, our conversion, bringing everyone together uh, into one body by the spirit of the living God. But then when we reach um, chapter 4 is when Paul takes the accumulation of what he's just preached to us and what he's just declared to us as who we are in Christ. Then he begins to challenge us uh, of, of who we are as Christians how we're supposed to live. What does that look like in the Christian life after one experiences what Paul has just talked about in the previous four chapters, which brings us to five. Now, mind you, the traditional title of this epistle originally is what most of us would, would come to understand is what would be called the pro Ephesians, which really means uh, as Ephesians written to the church of Ephesus. 
but other manuscripts, however, omit this portion and believe it to be, as a number of scholars challenge this traditional view uh, as being at Ephesus, uh, a more of a, um, not so much to the church in Ephesus, but at Ephesus at the point to where it is really a treatise designed for general use, for the practical life of the Christian everywhere. Not just specifically to one place, but this particular book and epistle was written generally to the Christian church at large. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 1, we hear uh, Christ speaking out to the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And this is really what we're going to acknowledge today. When we summarize the, the book of Ephesians, we see the book of Ephesians really broken down into five, five portions. First, it would be the exhortation to be followers of God and to walk in love. The duty of avoiding the impure practices of the surrounding pagan nations. The apostle cautions them particularly against the use of wine and the revelry which attends its use and exhorts them rather to engage in exercises to which the Holy Spirit would prompt them and to the services of praise and thanksgiving. Number four, he exhorts they to mutual subjection and in particular enjoins on wives the duty of being subject to their husbands. And then it finishes with the chapter closing with the statement of the duty of husbands to love their wives, illustrated by that which Christ has shown for the church. But ultimately, the core of this epistle is directed at our existence as believers and the duties that encompass our faith. These are primary and priority when reading this epistle. And this is where really Paul majors in, in dealing with this epistle and this letter to the Christian church that we too would prioritize this and realize, yes, it's great and fantastic and worth rejoicing and celebrating that we have become children of the Most High God. But ultimately, how is this practically lived out in our lives? How is this seen? Because Paul says in Ephesians that we must be careful on how we live. And the title of this message today, if you were to give it a title, it would be to us as to be careful how we live. Be careful how you live. And this is a strong point here because this is a major in the Christian life. We have been called to be careful on how we live. Not to be flamboyant, not to be out of control, not to be chaotic, not to be confusing, but to be careful on how we live. Or what could be translated as be watchful how you live your life. Or another translation says pay careful attention. Pay careful attention on how you live the Christian life. Walk circumspectly as some translations 
um, have it translated. It's which actually means to con- carefully consider all circumstances and possible consequences to your actions. As Christians, we're to be mindful to how we live. This is a command of Scripture to the Christian that we, as the body of Christ, are orderly people. That our lives should be subjected to the Scriptures. And we should live in such a way that we stand out from the world. Not being weird, not being strange in the sense of acting kooky to try to show our differences from the world around us, but living the way that Paul is exhorting us to live as Christians, you most certainly will stand out from the world. Living a godly, Christian, holy life, full of faith, full of love for our Savior, celebrating Christ in our hearts, will make you definitely stand out from the world. It's being a watchful man and a watchful woman. Look what it says in Proverbs 31 about the godly woman, that she being the prudent godly woman that she is, is not afraid. She's not afraid of the snow for her household. At the end of the day, what Paul is actually saying is that we must, as the Christian church, be prepared. Be prepared. In Luke 21, 36, Jesus says this. He says, be alert at all times. Be alert at all times. Not just some of the time, but we're to be watchful. We're to be prepared. We're to be careful. But we're to be alert at all times. And I believe today we're failing in this area. At least the Christian church in America, for all I know. Obviously, it's not for me to know every little church, that what they do and where they're at, where they've gone wrong, or where they're doing great. What I'm saying in general, in America, the consensus of the churches at large are not being alert at all times. I know you've heard me say this before because this is what the Bible says. But the Bible says that judgment comes to the house of God first. It visits us first. Judgment comes to us first. Why? Because we're not being careful in how we live. We're being the exact opposite. We're being reckless. We're being careless. Where the Bible says, Jesus said, we're to be watchful. We're to be alert at all times. He says this because he says, pray so that you have the power to escape everything that is about to happen and to stand in front of the Son of Man. This should be a great encouragement to you this morning, but it should be a great conviction as well that we, myself included, need to take this very seriously on how I live my life. I mean, if none of you showed up today, I would still preach this sermon. You want to know why? Because I need to hear it. Probably more than anybody else. Because this is something that we need to be preaching to ourselves every single day. We need to say, I mean, it's extremely simple. It's a principle that needs to be spoken. You need to be careful on how you live. Because everything around us in the world today teaches just the opposite. Everything that we're getting fed from the world is telling us to live opposite in what the scriptures tell us to live. And it can be very dangerous because there's so many allurements out there, right? There's so many things out there just begging and screaming for our attention. So many promises and, and, and things out there promising to to satisfy us and in the end of the day all they do is really enslave us this is what jesus said in luke 12 15 he says this watch out be on your guard 
against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And these are what seems to be the most alluring, damaging, deceptive means of the enemy is greed. This watchfulness is illustrated nicely in Mark 14.37 when it says that Jesus came and found his disciples sleeping when they should have been awake. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Why is this so significant? Because he wasn't being watchful. He was sleeping instead. And what happens when he comes out of a, a bad nap? He ends up hacking someone's ear off, operating out of the flesh. Not operating from the spirit, not being watchful. This is what happens when we are not watchful. We behave in ways that are contrary to the word of God. So then, church, this morning, the admonition is this. Be careful on how you live. Let this just sound in your ears this morning. Remember the words of Matthew 25, 13, where Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So then, be careful how you live, making the most of your time, because the days are most certainly. The days are most certainly evil. It doesn't take too long, right, to go out into this, into our culture, just locally, and see the things that are happening. I was told the other day that this particular portion of Watauga or Fort Worth has the one of the highest um, levels of child trafficking. Who would have known? It doesn't look like it, right? Kidnappings, different things in this area. Think about that. You know, you look at a you look at a, a place like this. You look around and you say, "Well, it's really you know pretty calm, pretty laid back." But there is evil right at our front door. So it's extremely important that we have a church here. The word of God's being preached here. The word of God's being preached out there as well. That's what the church does. Then we got to come to the conclusion and the premise of why we're to be careful. Because you know, you can tell people to your blue in the face that they need to be careful how they live. You can tell your kids, be careful how you live. Be careful what you do. Do this, don't do that. And it just becomes a set of rules. But when you have a premise and a foundation and a presupposition of why we do what we do, then it all comes together. It all makes sense. Well, the Bible says, because you are not your own, number one. You don't belong to you. So the whole spirit of entitlement dies. For the Bible says, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? And then showing who we are. Ephesians 2.10, for we are His, not ours, His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22 says, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye are also builded together, being the habitation of God through the Spirit. That's who we are, brothers and sisters. We are the habitation 
of God, recognizing who we are, makes a huge difference on how we live. There's, an indirect, there's a direct correlation to our identity and our behavior. Do you understand that? Your identity will always determine your behavior. If you are looking to the world or you're looking to social media or looking to someone to be able to offer you a standard, maybe it's from Hollywood or whatever it may be, your actions are going to reflect that. If your identity isn't a crucified and risen Savior, your behavior and your actions and the practices of your life will testify of that reality. John the Baptist called out the Pharisees because they looked really good. They looked really good. They had all the apparel on. They could probably sing all the songs. They could probably do all the things. But in reality, they were dead men's bones. Even, even, even John said to them, who's, who's, you know, who told you to, to basically repent? Who told you about the wrath to come? Then he says, bear fruit in agreement with the one you profess to follow. Calling them out saying, listen, if we profess to be Christians, then our life should follow in such a way. In Psalm 23, 1, it shows clearly that we don't belong to ourselves, that the Lord ultimately owns us. He says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world. And before he finishes this verse and this thought, he says, and all who live in it. So whether you're converted or whether you're unconverted, God owns you. And one of the most offensive things you can tell an unbeliever is that God owns them. Because he does. God owns all things. Why? Because he created all things. He has a right to tell an unconverted person what to do. Do you realize that? Of course, the church, they enjoy God's laws. They enjoy God's commands. They enjoy God's word. They enjoy obeying God. But the world's got to understand as well that they're creatively owned by God as well. They're just not redeemed. They're not twice owned. They're just owned through God's creation. The Bible says in Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart for everything, not just some things that you do, for everything you do flows from it. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Showing you the premise and why we do what we do. Why do you put up with what you put up with? Why do you deal with what you deal with? How do you deal with the things that come at you? The adversity, the financial problems. Who knows what it is? It could be the rejection. It could be personal issues that you have with your health. How do we, how do we deal with these things from a biblical perspective? How are we supposed to live? If we have an understanding that the very foundation of our faith is Jesus Christ and we stand upon the Lord, we don't become circumstantial Christians. Circumstances don't dictate who we are in Christ. We can be in a palace or a dungeon. Things don't change for the Christian. You could be dying from cancer, God forbid. Or you could be living the most healthy life. It doesn't change who we are in Christ. And it should change our worship and it should change our attitudes. But it does. And this is why we have reminders every Sunday morning that calls us out 
to live for Christ. To watch over the way that we live. To be careful how you live. Colossians 4, 5 says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside to redeem the time. We have to understand, does time belong to you or does time belong to God? Everything belongs to God. God owns everything, but he loans it to us so that we would be good stewards over everything that God has given us. God owns all all time. In Psalms 31, 15, it says, My times are in your hands. Everything we do belongs to God. And this is the the exhortation this morning to realize, to be careful how you live. Be careful about your time. Understand that everything we have belongs to the Lord. And do you realize there's going to come a day and an hour where we stand before God and we give account to God for how we've spent our time, how we've spent our money, how we've utilized the resources, how we've utilized the gifts, skills, and talents that he has given us. We're going to have to come before God and give an account for these things. We want to pray that all these things would just be wood, hay, and stubble. Every penny that we've spent, God knows. I'm called into account. That sounds terrifying. But the reality, this is truth. Now, obviously, just remember, I'm not saying you're going to be called into a judgment in such a way like the unbeliever. That's not what I'm saying. But there are rewards for the believer. And there will be regrets in the believer's life. We can't just go on living however we want to live and expect there's not going to be any outcome or consequences on the day of judgment or the day that we stand before Christ. We can't just live that way. We have to, at some level, by God's grace and power, enabled by the power of the Spirit of God and His gospel to live a way that would glorify God, that we would be mindful and understand, well, the gospel saved me. That's all there is to this life now. The gospel has saved you and converted you and enabled you to live a certain way that basically testifies that you have been converted, that you belong to Christ, that you are pleasing in his sight. This is why we've got to be careful on how we live. Application. I listed five areas of application that I think we'd all do well to be mindful of concerning our lives. These five points consist of our mind. Second point would be our time. Third would be our words. Okay? Four would be our company. And number five, yes, sorry to say, if you want to bring this up, our money. This is always one of those points where people are like, okay, here he goes. He's going to start making everybody feel guilty about money. But that's not the case. Because everything connects with our relationship with Christ. The way we even deal with finances really ultimately um, testify on our healthy relationship with our Lord. Let's go with the first one, which is our mind. Dealing with our mind. Because you guys all know that the battle begins here, right? It begins here. And then everything else follows. What is it? I don't remember the statistic. I think it was like we, each, we have like 400. We, have, we say... Uh, 400 negative thoughts to ourselves each day. I believe is what it was. The statistic could be higher. But just think about this for a moment. Think about how much self-talk there is in your own life and how many things you say to yourself that are demeaning and damning throughout the entire day. We just destroy ourselves with our own thoughts because they're not really controlled. They're not really put in the proper place. Therefore, 
We have a whole string of negativity throughout the whole entire day. And then we wonder why we're in the mess that we're in. Because it all starts in the mind. And we say the enemy will attack the mind. And this is why Paul says in, in uh, Philippians 4, 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue, and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Another version says to think on these things. This is, I mean, logically it makes sense. See, so yeah, I get that. But practically, these things have to be put into place in order for us to get a result in which Paul is dealing with. In 2 Corinthians 10, 5, it says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. This is really cognitive behavioral therapy is really what it is. The world has stolen it from God. It's really just, it's really just, Understanding when these thoughts come to examine the reality and the truth of each thought that enters into your mind, the validity of it and the rationality of it, and whether we keep it or we get rid of it. Really, it's this reality. And we have to do this. We have to take every thought captive. We don't try to ignore everything that comes through our mind. Because try to ignore something and see how stronger it gets, right? The more we try to say, don't think of a pink elephant, we're thinking of a pink elephant, right? The reality is if you take the thought and then you examine the thought in light of God's word to see if it's rationally valid and you deal with it that way. Uh, very powerful point, um, really, the psychology and how we are supposed to think in the battle of the mind and mental health. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. I know the Puritans are really big on meditation and meditating on the word of God and not just racing through the Bible, you know, but stopping, parking there, um, savoring the word of God, allowing the word of God to literally just drip into our system to permeate our beings, to intoxicate us to the point where we just keep going over the word into our spirits until it becomes a reality. Our lives begin to change. Uh, the Puritans couldn't understand how anybody could live the Christian life if they weren't meditating on God's word. The two just go hand in hand. Now, do we all fall? Are we all, are we all guilty of not applying this? I think we all are at some level. Obviously, some of us may be at a higher level of meditation than the others, but it would be good for us to understand today the lost principle of biblical meditation. I'm not talking about the New Age stuff. I'm talking about really meditating on what God's Word says and what it says to you. Really learning to just sit there and just boil in it until it changes us. And I really think if we would practice this, I think a majority of our issues wouldn't be at the level that they are. And I don't think they'd be as painful as they are. I think we would have 
the ability through meditation to be able to take an honest look at what, what's really going on and deal with it in a way that's biblical and godly with patience and peace than flying off a handle, going crazy, and then running to the world's remedies to try to fix everything. Uh, I think these are extremely important measures that we would do well to apply in our lives. Psalms 19, 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, said, Remember, it is not hasty reading, but serious meditating upon the holy and heavenly truths that make them prove sweet and profitable, profitable to the soul. It is not the bee's touching of the flower which gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower, which draws out the sweet. It is not he who reads most, but he who meditates most, who will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. Isn't that beautiful? Romans 12, 2 says, And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. I mean, we hear these verses, but do we actually apply them? Do we meditate upon them to what they truly mean, the significance of meditation, and how that would literally renew and transform our lives? This is for you. God has granted us with the word of God. This is the wisdom of God. This is for us as believers to be able to live in this world in a way that we're not being demolished every day because we're not willing to subject ourselves to what God's word says. Very dangerous lifestyle as well. Point two would really be our time. Our application point would be our time. This is a really big thing, our time, how we spend our time. It's so important in any endeavor. Even the, even the world understands how important, at least the people that have become successful by the world standard, have saw that, you know, understanding how to utilize our time and the damages of not keeping track of what we do with our time. Uh, I read a story about one gentleman who was asked to, um, he was in sales to record um, everything that he did throughout the week. And he had somehow felt that in his heart that he was doing these three things constantly. That was where all of his time was going throughout the week. So he went ahead and he, he uh, began to record his time. When he got to the end of the week, he realized he hadn't done any of those three things. He was doing all kinds of stuff, but he certainly wasn't doing any of those three things that he said was taking up all of his time. Not one of those things was he doing. So he said, this can't be right. So he did it again. And come to find out the same conclusion that all these things that he said was taking up all of his time weren't taking up any of his time. He was doing all a bunch of other stuff. So we can deceive ourselves and we can say, "Oh, I just spend so much time doing all these things, and this is what I'm doing." And come to the end of the come to the end of the week and realize that no, ninety percent of your time you're on Facebook. Ten percent of your time you were doing this and this and this, but you didn't do any of these things that you're constantly saying that you're doing. That's wearing you out, okay? So this isn't to condemn anybody, but this just shows the importance of utilizing our, our time, not so we can become successful, so we can glorify God. That's the whole reason we're even on this planet. The whole reason we've been converted is not for us to become successful. It's for us to glorify God 
and to be faithful with everything that he's given us. Because why? He owns all things, right? He owns all things. Everything belongs to God. All time belongs to God. And all time we'll give an account for. Ephesians 5, 1 says, be imitators of God. I think if we'd spend more time being imitators of God and not imitators of the world, I think our time would look much different. If we learn to imitate God instead of imitate the world, I think our time would be different. If we wouldn't care so much about whether people like us and they're following us and blah, 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 how many shares I got. And it's not just social media. It's everywhere. Trying to make a name for ourselves. If we could just die to this, there's nothing wrong with being on social media. I'm not saying that. But the reality is, is that we waste so much time. And we don't even realize it. David Brainerd said, the great missionary, said, be careful to make a good improvement of precious time. The crime of wasting time. I mean, there's so many verses, and we can't go through all of this today. There's no way we even uh, scratch the tip of the iceberg what's in all these verses. But the reality is, is that we need to utilize our time. We need to understand where our time is going. How is your time being spent? And what are you spending your time on? Jesus said, I came to do the work of my father. It needs to be about his father's business. Jesus never wasted time. He never took a detour out of his life to go hang out and waste time. Everything that he did generated around his purpose of the cross. Everything that he did. Nothing was wasted. Everything he did had a reason and a purpose to glorify God. Now I know we're not Christ. But we're little Christ, the Bible says. We're followers of Christ. And we are to pursue a blameless life in the area of how we spend our time. Number three, our words. Our communication. Do you believe we can waste a lot of time with our communication? We can be great time wasters just in the things that we spend Time doing, like speaking negatively, slander, gossip, doing things that are a literal waste of time. Do you know gossip actually kicks in a certain endorphin in your body, a certain chemical release, that you can actually become addicted to gossip? And you can find yourself in gossip for hours and hours and hours and hours. Why? Because it's a drug. You keep coming back for it for another hit because it's intoxicating to talk about other people. It really is. It's, it's, it's slander and these types of things uh, can be very, very wasteful in the way we spend time. The scripture says here in our reading, it says to make the most of our time. And the Bible says, do not be foolish. And this would be the foolishness the scripture is warning us about. In Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. What is your time like in the things that you talk about? Like, what do you talk about in, 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 in your free time? Or It's all God's time. There's no free time in that sense. But what do you give your mouth over to? How's your language? How do you speak? What are the things that you speak about? What do you talk about? You talk about, I mean, there's nothing wrong with watching a football game, but are you so intoxicated with the NFL that you're just so consumed with the NFL that, you know, you very rarely ever talk about God at all? A verse has very rarely ever come out of your mouth. 
Because the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our heart really shows the temperature and gauge of our faith. Colossians 3.8 says, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Ephesians 5.4 says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish, here it is, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. What Paul's dealing with here, he's dealing with this reality that the old life and the new life. The scriptures tell us that, that you put on the new man, which is after God, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That we're to, we're to, we're to change for, we were once like this. We were once heavily involved with, with a very, I had a very filthy mouth before I was converted. Very, very vulgar. I was a very vulgar person in every extreme. You know, but when we're converted, when we're saved, it's not saying you're not going to struggle with things, struggle with your communication, but the reality is that we should pursue language that glorifies God. And our communication should be for the edification and the encouragement of the church. And not find ourselves in endless conversations that are fruitless and time-wasting and take up a lot of time that once again, we're going to have to give an account for. In James 1.26, it says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceive, tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Psalm 141.3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I need to post this up like every day. Like in my car, you know, wherever I go, I need to have this flashing sign that says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. It's not just, it's not, you know, just saying foul things, but it's, it's, it's the self-accusing nature of our own communication to ourselves. And then how we pour that upon other people. Jesus said in Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified and by your words you will be condemned. It's frightening. It's frightening, right? This is why we have opportunities to repent. To turn away from the things that we have done wrong, right? And turn to a loving, gracious Savior who has literally stepped into our stead, lived a life that we could not live, born completely sinless, born of a virgin, okay, and lived a perfect life, perfect life, satisfying the righteous covenantal law of God, which ultimately was against us because we're in violation because we're born in sin, right? We practice sin, and by nature, we're sinners. So we've kind of got a twofold condemnation coming upon us. First of all, by nature, we're very sinful. The Bible says we're enemies of God. And then because of that, we practice evil. And we stand in account of violating the laws of God. But we have a Savior who can cleanse us of all of our sin. If we put our faith and trust in Him, He can wash us and make us as though before God, the Father, we've never sinned at all. And this is the beauty of the gospel. 
boy, what a, what a, what a terrifying thing. We didn't have a gospel, right? We just had the law. If you had the law, there's no gospel. What a tragedy. Which brings us to number four, our company, our relationships. Our relationships. Choosing the right relationships with other people. Now, within the context of this epistle, I know this is a this isn't, you know, a hundred percent expository preaching this morning. There's a lot of practical um, push here, but the reality is we have to understand that within the context of our lives, which the book of Ephesians is talking about, how we live our lives, to be careful how we live, all these things are in Ephesians, the epistle of Ephesians, how we how we how we live and the manner of life that we live, even I mean, even our money in our relationships and the company that we keep. In Ephesians 5, 16 and 17, it just tells us to be really careful in how we live, making the most of our time, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish. Foolish, in other words, do not be fools, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, understand the word of God. Understand what the Bible means. And how we're to live. First Corinthians fifteen thirty three says, "Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals." I mean, you hear it all the time. We'll say, "Like you know, I've got all these friends that blast in Christ, or they live worldly lives, or there's bad company." But I want to, you know, I want to be the Christian in their life and be the one that influences them and blah, blah, blah. But usually at the end of the day, what happens is they're influenced. <clears throat> and then their faith begins to diminish and they end up shipwrecking their faith. I totally and completely understand the reality of preaching the gospel to a sinful world and to sinful hearts, knowing only the only thing that can change that heart is the gospel and the spirit of God. I get all of that. But also, the Bible warns us to be careful of the company that we keep. That we're not to to have company with those who are in the world. We can have friends that are in the world, but we have to be careful in how they influence us to the things of the world. We want to make sure that our company, even even the Bible tells us not to be unevenly yoked in business, or not to be unevenly yoked in marriage. You know, it's very powerful. But why why would God say this? Because He knows that the gospel's at stake here. It's not about you and your feelings and your your desires. It's about Him and glorifying Him and testifying of the reality of the gospel. Paul called it a mystery. He called marriage a mystery. He put it in reference to the gospel. Like this is how powerful it is. Our friendships and the, the people that we align with and the people that we connect with and are influenced by. We have to ask ourselves, is this worthy, worthy, of, of my test, destroying my testimony. Because what happens is the world gets into you. And you start behaving more like the world. And you start losing your testimony, not only to them, but to everybody else. And you start losing your faith for Christ. Very dangerous place to be. In James 4.4, 4, James says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I don't want to make myself an enemy of God. And I, listen, I'm, you guys know me well enough, most of you know me well enough now, that I certainly don't put myself on a pedestal up here. I know there's struggles in our lives, there's things in our lives, but I think the main emphasis of what James is saying that if we're not careful, 
If we get too close and too friendly with the world, we're going to be sucked into the world and it's going to destroy our testimony. Ephesians 5.11 says, Have no fellowship. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather than have fellowship and playing with them, expose them. Not out of being mean or being rude, but out of your love for Christ. This is what we're called to do. We're not to have any fellowship with darkness or the unfruitful works of darkness. But instead, we're to expose them. And you know what happens when you expose things? You become enemy number one. Even if you do it in a loving spirit, right? Anytime you confront someone's idols or the things that they love, do you think it's a good reaction? No, humble, thank you, you know? Or you're going to get a bad reaction. I've had both. The last point is our money, our spending. I know these are all small, but if you would like, you can, you know, I would encourage you as a church to to go deeper with this and study this and really go over this. And, And I'm sure you could add to this, you know, probably quite a bit. But because of our time, we're limited. Our money, our spending. The Bible says, let him that stole steal no more, as you read in Ephesians 4.28, but rather let him work. Working with his hands, the thing which is good, that he may have to give it to him that needeth. Our spending, our money is very important uh, to who we are, reflects who we are, we reflects um, how we trade our time. Really, um, money really represents us. So when you give money away, you're ultimately, at the end of the day, you're giving yourself away because you traded your time, your skills, your life for that piece of paper. And that piece of paper defines who you are in the sense to where I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go ahead and be generous to this person. Why is it generous? Because you worked hard for it. You gave your life for it, your time, your skill. You worked with your hands. You earned that money. And now you give that money away. Instead of always being greedy, looking for a handout, like you would from from the world's perspective, especially today when everybody wants a handout, nobody wants to work. Every place you go today, it seems, they're understaffed. Went to Verizon yesterday, and there was no one there to help us. We sat there for an hour at Verizon. They're salesmen. They're crawling all over me a year ago. But I go in there now, they avoid me like the plague. They don't have time for me. And I asked him, I said, what's, what's going on? Do you understand? She just looked at me like, are you nuts? Can't you tell? And she said, yeah, we have no one that wants to work. No one wants to, no one wants to work. And we're at that time, ladies and gentlemen, in our country where I think, I don't know. I'm sure you guys probably have a better explanation than I do. But there's a serious problem with, with a welfare mentality in this country and just looking for handouts and getting free stuff from the government and all of that. Um, it's not good for the soul. We're designed to work, to work with our hands. Uh, it's good for the soul. You know, you having issues, go split a rick of wood. You feel much better when you're done. Go mow the lawn, you know, or rake, or do something. Because there's something about, and you guys can all testify to this, there's something about when you work with your hands, it does something to your soul, Right? Doesn't it, you feel like you've accomplished something. You feel productive. You have a sense of well-being because you're working, you're doing something. Um, sometimes, you know, 
for me, you know, you guys all know that this church has been planted five years, five, almost five years now. And even through the open air ministry that I had through Jeremiah Cry Ministries, I mean, I had to go get a Bible. I don't get another job. I had to work, you know, and I, you know, I'm still working. I have a full-time job. I work 40 hours uh, and pastor this church. Um, but the work is good. You see, it's good for my soul. I enjoy working. I like to work. I, I like to roll up my sleeves and go to work. I feel good about it. Um, now, I believe that if, if a pastor is full-time, he should have that same element and idea towards work as he would put for going out and splitting wood all day. He should be really, in a spiritual sense, splitting wood all week for the church. Oh, you should be lazy just because now he's, now he's full time. He's supposed to sit at his desk and do, just pill around. No, I mean, he needs to be working uh, the way God has him work. Or there should be enough work in the church for him to do to where he's busy. My point is, is that a lot of our problems, I believe, a lot of things that, 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 that can literally go to our minds, and a lot of the, I think a lot of the mental health issues you're seeing today, I'm not making a blanket statement, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, but what I'm saying is a lot of the mental health issues that we're seeing today is come from a spirit of handouts. We just don't want to do anything, we don't want to work, we want to be idle. Nothing worse uh, for your soul than to be idle. Nothing worse for your soul than to be idle. It's destroying this is why we want to be good stewards with our time. We want to be good stewards. And part of that is, um, if need be, roll up our sleeves and get after it. Uh, do whatever it takes to glorify God. And as a man, I'm called to take care of my family. Um, otherwise, the Bible calls me worse than an infidel. So these are things that personal, my personal convictions for me, for now... This is what I'm going to do, and that's how I'm going to spend my time. You know, and I'm not. I don't want to steal. I don't want handouts. I don't want freebies. I want to work. I want to earn what I get. And I think we'd all do well of following that admonition. First Timothy six nine says, "Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and in many foolish and harmful desires that plunge into people, and it's ruin and it's destruction." Ecclesiastes says, "Whoever loves money never has enough." Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This is too, this too is meaningless. Meaningless. This hunger desires to be rich also has its problems. You know, we just need to be content with whatever the Lord gives us. And wherever we're at, whether it's a lot or a little, we have to learn. And I'm speaking to myself here. We have to learn how to be content with what God has given us. It may be a little, but learn how to function out of a little. Don't act like you got a lot and you got a little, because that can prove disastrous as well. We want to operate in a way that we can, as Paul said, he knew how to he knew how to live having little and he knew how to live having much. He knew how to operate in both realms without losing his mind. Hebrews thirteen five says, "Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you.'" Ultimately, the presupposition is is that we start worried, being worried about money and worried about all these things. If you're being hasty with money and you're sinning with money and then you don't have money, don't blame it on God and don't say you don't have enough faith to believe more than God. God expects us to be wise with our money. You know, those who just have a, a just a free spirit with your money. And then you have no more money left. And the next thing you know, you're saying, well, we just don't have enough faith. I'd love to have more money. 
No, God's giving you plenty of money, but he says to budget your money as well, to take care of your money, to utilize your money for the glory of God. Once again, we're going to be called into account with every penny that we spend. And once again, all that money belongs to God. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. In other words, the money comes without the chaos. Proverbs 13.11 says, Dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. This is being wise with your money, wise with your investments, knowing how to handle money, being mature with your money. You know, people that win the lotto, if you do a statistic, if you look at, if you go and take a, do all the statistics on all those who have won lotteries, their lives are almost, I think, I think all of them, maybe minus one, all their lives ended in tragedy and a mess. It's taking an immature person that scratched off a card and now he's got $20 million, but yet he's still got the same immaturity. He doesn't have financial wisdom, so he loses all the money and then he realizes everyone's after him. All the other goofs who don't have any financial maturity either are after him for his money and everybody goes down the drain. Someone commits suicide. One of them even said, I wish I never won this. I wish I was still collecting a check. I never won this. When I won this, everything went crazy. Doesn't mean God's against being wealthy. God's not, because obviously Abraham, Joseph, we know that there's scriptural illustrations in the Bible where people were wealthy. But wealth comes with maturity and godliness. It should just make us more of what we already are. Wealth just makes us more of what you already are. If you're stingy, you're going to be more stingy. If you're more generous, you're going to be, if you're generous, you're going to be more generous. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Every man purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, out of compulsion, for God loveth the cheerful giver. And remember that the Lord your God, for it is him who gives you power to get wealth in the first place. Remember, God loves a cheerful giver, someone that can give with a happy heart. And give unto the Lord and not worry about it. And be able to give to the work of the ministry. Um, to give to your local church. I know I'm the pastor here, so saying that is a little awkward. But the reality is is that, you know, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading the corn, right? I mean, in all reality, um, there's a lot of work that goes into um, stabilizing and keeping the local church, the local church, and be, helping us continue to do what we're doing. And, you know, the you know, it, 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 can cause, it can cause things to happen that we don't like to happen. So then, the Bible says in Ephesians 5, Be careful how you live, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. And with that, I'd just like to give you this last exhortation, um, just to be mindful. Okay? Be mindful of the things that you think about. Be mindful of your mind. Number two, be mindful of your time. Uh, be mindful of your communication, your words. Be mindful of your company. And be mindful of your money. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, we know that you are the Lord over all of our lives. There's not one portion of our life that we're to hold in autonomy or secrecy or private. Everything belongs to you. We don't even have the right to think the thoughts that we want to think because you own our thoughts. You own our minds. You own us, the total self. Total humanity belongs 
to the sovereign God. And Lord, our lives are on loan. Lord, let us be good stewards of our thoughts. Let us be good stewards of our time. Let us be good stewards of our communication and the things we talk about. Let us be good stewards with our company. And Lord, let us be good stewards with our money. In Jesus' name, amen.